Well, it is a good, great joy to be with you and to, to be before you. Uh, our family, and perhaps me especially, has missed you. While we were away, we worshiped at another church, and uh, it just made me think about how grateful I am to be a part of this body. So it really is wonderful to be back with you, and it was wonderful to see that this wasn't on purpose, not by design, but it was wonderful to see that the first psalm that I'd be preaching to you as we resumed is this particular psalm, Psalm 23. Uh, And what Psalm 23 is, is a psalm of confidence or a psalm of comfort, meant to build us up in faith. And it is an incredibly sweet psalm. It is just uh, the way that it reads. And it's also uh, a fairly well-known psalm if you grew up in the church, or even if you didn't. You probably have heard these words before, perhaps memorized them at some time. And it's a psalm that truly grabs the heart, and it speaks to us, and with, it speaks right to many of our deepest longings, and explore, it explores with us the nature of our relationship with God, and seeks to speak into the questions we have about some of God's fundamental heart dispositions toward us. So let's look at this psalm together. Uh, This is Psalm 23. I'll read all six verses. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, with what wonder you gathered us together before you, and you gathered us with each other, and we pray that as we hear from your word that you will continue speaking as we study it. And as we consider the wonders of this psalm, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take these truths and implant them deep in our hearts, that we might be corrected and comforted and strengthened. Pray that I would serve your people well and that every word would honor you. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to begin this morning by talking about some of the substance of the various commitments that we brought with us when we walked into this room this morning. And uh, as I get into this, I just want to acknowledge that uh, for, for many of us, uh, I am speaking to a room that's full of people that are leading very full lives with all kinds of various commitments that, that, that we feel all the time. And while they're unique for each one of us, uh, they do exist along some similar categories, do they not? Like many of us are, have made vocational commitments, uh, not all of us, but many of us have to a certain employer or to a, maybe to a client. We've made commitments that, that, uh, that eat up some of the resources of our lives. 
Uh, kids, uh, I mean, we, we've said this already, I guess, a couple of times this morning, but you are about to go to start a new school year, and, and with that are going to come some, some commitments that are going to call for some things from you. Uh, many of us are here in this room this morning because we have certain faith commitments to the God that we believe made us and, and calls us and won him to, uh, us to himself in Jesus Christ, and, and with that faith come certain certain commitments. If you own a house, you have commitments to that building. And of course, uh, we all have commitments to family and friends, right? And we have commitments to neighbors that we've been called to love. And I could go on and on, right? I mean, I could just go on. I could, and I could go on and on, but I don't want the blood pressure in this room to, to keep rising as we think about how overwhelmed we all are as we enter into the fall. But it's true, isn't it? And here's the thing, all of these commitments are competing with each other, aren't they? Like, like we, we are limited people uh, with limited resources and time and energy. God created us that way. Uh, and all of these commitments are getting asked to move, get moved up on, on this priority list. Uh, asking something from us at the expense of another commitment that we've made. And so what do we do with that? Well, what we do is we budget, don't we? Like we feel the weight of that and we budget how much we're going to give. And we feel the weight of that every time we open our email and look at our calendars. The truth is, is that our lives aren't just full of commitments. They're full of measured commitments, aren't they? Calculated commitments. And a lot of that's just necessary. And it's against the backdrop of our lives that are full of measured commitments that I think this psalm stands out to us as incredibly sweet. Because what it bears witness to is the holistic, complete, undivided, full to bursting commitment of God given to you. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And I want to hit it three different ways as I work my way through the psalm. We're talking about God's commitment to you. Where do we see it? I want to say we see it first in his attentive care. And second, in his undeterred favor. And finally, in his relentless pursuit. So, um, attentive care, undeterred favor, relentless pursuit. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. First, attentive care. Well, how do we see God's attentive care? In this psalm. Well, first we see it in just how personal personal it is. I mean, it just kind of comes off the psalm as you're work, working your way through it. And that's really because David sets a tone for what this psalm, uh, for, 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 the, for just how personal this psalm is right at the beginning in verse 1, where he says, the Lord is my shepherd. And I think it's important that, uh, that he doesn't just say that the Lord is a shepherd, or the Lord is like a shepherd, what he says is the Lord is my shepherd. And so there's this personal connection uh, that exists between David and God right at the beginning. That's the tone that's set. And it communicates an awareness of how they belong to each other. Uh, one of you knew, uh, earlier this week, one of you knew that I would be preaching on the psalm, and you slid me this sweet little book 
uh, called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. And what it is, it's written by a guy named Philip Keller, and uh, he has a lot of familiarity uh, with the vocational work of a shepherd. He is a former shepherd, uh, and it's just sweet. I, I couldn't recommend it to you highly enough. Um, but I, And I will say this. As he looks at this and outlines what, what he's getting out of this psalm, just looking at it through the lens of a shepherd, he can't go a page without bringing up the intimate nature of a shepherd's work. The deeply personal relationship that exists between a sheep and a shepherd. It's like the shepherd belongs to the sheep almost and even over as much as the sheep belongs to the shepherd. The shepherd is deeply familiar with the sheep. The shepherd knows when the sheep is hurt. He knows what the the wool feels like when the sheep is sick. He's deeply aware of the shep- of the sheep's needs. He knows when the sheep are hungry or when they have in or when they're in danger or when the sheep are afraid. The shepherd is aware of all of these things. It's very personal work. And it is the vocation that God chooses over and over in his word to describe the nature of his relationship with you and me. And you see even more just how personal it is when you see the compulsory uh, work that, of the shepherd outlined in this psalm. I mean, look at the active verbs that are being used here. He says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. The image of provision and rest, the green pastures and still waters, that kind of tranquility is lovely. But what stands out to me is the compulsory nature of it. It's like the shepherd reveals good to his sheep and then forces it on them. Almost as if they wouldn't be able to recognize it for themselves. Like if they, if they came across something that might be nourishing or good to them, they might just walk by it. And so the work of the shepherd leads sheep into good places and then makes them stop and stay there. That's what the work of the shepherd does. And this is important because um, the, 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 apparently there are times when the path of righteousness leads the sheep through a dark valley. It's interesting to me that, uh, that the path of righteousness runs right by green pastures and still waters and by valleys of death. And so this is where we see that the attentive care of the shepherd is constant. It's present both in places of pleasure and joy and green pastures and still waters and it's present in places of pain and suffering like valleys of shadows of death this uh translation valley of death could also be translated valley of deep darkness it's it's meant to communicate a place of unknown danger uh the 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 mountains would cast a shadow of the valley and and that would and you wouldn't be able to see into it and that would allow those who seek your harm to operate with some measure of freedom that's that's what's being communicated there. If you're a fan of uh, of The Hobbit, 
Um, which if you're not, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know if I have anything for you. But, <laughs> but if you're a fan of The Hobbit, then uh, remember, uh, if you will, when The Hobbits were looking at Mirkwood Forest. They were on the outside looking in, and uh, they didn't know what was in there, but they knew that it was dark and scary and full of unknown dangers. That's really the idea that's captured here in the valley of the shadow of death. And we know that this is true in our lives. Like we know, we know that there are seasons of peace and pleasure. And we know that there are seasons of pain and suffering. And we also know that we're not in control of when those seasons come and go. And the comfort of this passage is not in the elimination of the valley of the shadow of death, although that day is coming. But it's in the promise that you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod of a shepherd was used to protect them from predators. And the staff was used by the shepherd to keep them on the path, to help them navigate their way through it. These are the sources of the comfort for David. It's like he's saying, your protection, your guidance, your discipline is what brings me comfort. So can you get a sense for just how fully orbed the divine comfort that God gives to his people as their shepherd is? It's personal, it's compulsory, and it's constant. And this stands out to me, especially against many of the more inadequate ways that we have of giving comfort to each other. Now look, I mean, we've all done this, okay? We're all in this boat, and we've all also been frustrated by this, okay? Uh, so I'm not naming any names, but I can give you an example from my own, from my own marriage, with permission. Shonda and I were laughing about this yesterday, but I'd like to believe this was uh, in the early years, and maybe it exists less so now than it did then, but, uh, but especially early on, Shonda and I were, Shonda would come and she would talk to me about something that was bothering her. And listen, it wasn't always about me, okay? Um, but it could have been about work, it could have been about, uh, or, or it could have been about me, I don't know, you know, there were several of those too. So, um, but after listening and talking about it for a while, I would often respond, not, not even knowing I would do this, but I would often respond by saying, you know, I just don't think it's as bad as you think it is. Or I would say something like, you know, I think you can relax, just relax. And then I would go on to like problem solve, like rationally problem solve whatever she was dealing with, you know. And uh, and, I, and this is what I remember clearly is uh, Shonda coming to me at some point and saying, would you please tell me, she was very polite, would you please tell me, stop telling me to relax. It doesn't help. And of course she's right. Like when have you ever told a worrying person to stop worrying and that end up being successful? Like does that ever work, Right. But the truth was, what I was doing to her was even worse than that. Because by, uh, by telling people to just relax and then trying to fix their problem, you're not actually entering into it in any way. You're remaining distant from their suffering and their pain. They need comfort, and you're actually withholding it. And you're trivializing their suffering because of the presumption that if I can fix it, you probably should have already. But the divine comfort that God gives his people is so sweet because of just how deeply personal it is. 
He doesn't remain detached from us in our valleys of shadows of death. In fact, what he does is he enters in into those with us. And when Jesus incarnated into the world, he came to be with us. That's exactly what he did. And it's amazing to me that when he came, he didn't stay in the high places. In fact, when when he dropped into the world, he went right into the valleys of deep darkness. And ministered to the people in those places. And he said, I will be with you always until the end of the age. And when he was there, he said, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And when he said that, what he said was not only are you unable to go places where I am unwilling to go. But I am willing to insert myself between you and those things that seek your harm. And when he went to the cross, that's exactly what he did. He inserted himself between the torment and finality of death for our sake. He walked the valley of the shadow of death with his sheep, leading the way before his sheep. Why? Because that's what a good shepherd does. As we go into verse 5, we begin to see the metaphor change. It began by talking about the Lord as shepherd. And now it seems to be talking about the Lord of our, as our host. Or maybe even a hosting king. And it's there that we get a picture of God's undeterred favor. It's like what he's saying is... On the other side of the valley, this is what's waiting for you. And the first thing that jumps out out at me as we look at his undeterred favor is simply the lavish generosity of God's favor. He prepares a table before me. That's a picture of a feast. And, And when he anoints my head with oil, well, that was a way of honoring a guest that comes to your home. You're a guest of honor in God's home. And my cup overflows is a way of saying that God's cup of blessing never runs out. And so we get this picture that he's exceedingly generous to his people. And almost as striking as this generosity that we see in the passage is what we don't see. Because what we don't see in this psalm is any mention of anything anyone has done to deserve this favor. It's the the picture of the unilateral movement of God's love toward the undeserving that's so amazing here. And listen, the Bible is remarkably consistent on this point. I'm borrowing this from another pastor. I heard say this, uh, just highlighting some of the main character, how the main characters in the Bible are deeply inadequate people. He said that Moses couldn't speak. Uh, Job had no peace. David called himself a worm. Uh, Isaiah was a man of unclean lips. Elijah was at a point where he had had enough and said he was no better than his fathers. And uh, Paul claimed that he was the chief of sinners. Now listen, if you, let's say, okay, let's say you're just building, I'm not encouraging this, it's a hypothetical, okay? But let's say you're just building a religion. Okay, you're, you're, you're creating a faith movement that you want people to follow. 
are the uh, blatant inadequacies of the heroes of the faith what you would lead with? And yet the Bible repeats over and over again that this is true of those who follow Jesus. And if the Bible's making a point over and over and over again, often what it's doing is trying to get you to believe something that's so very hard for us to believe. That God's favor really is that profound. That, that his really, his unrelenting generosity toward the undeserving is really true of who he is. And when God gives generous favor to the undeserving, he places them in a seat of victory. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. One scholar explained this passage this way, that the enemies are powerless to prevent the enjoyment of God's hospitality. Many think this is the image of a victory celebration after a battle. Some of you have seen images like this in uh, on movies. You know, if you watch fantasy shows or fantasy movies, sometimes you see people in a feast after a victory and like the conquered enemies have to witness them feasting. You know, maybe that's what's going on. Maybe not. Uh, um, uh, but what we're given here, I think, is just another picture of what life with God looks like. That if you belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ, you are undeserving guests of honor who share in his victory. And it's, I think it's just impossible to look at this and not become bewildered at the significance we must have in God's eyes. Because I have no idea how God can look at the substance of my life or the content of my thoughts and see a shred of significance. And yet... Christ came on a mission of love to reclaim the undeserving lost for himself only because they mattered so much to him. And hear this, only because you mattered so much to him that he came to take the undeserving and place them in a seat of victory. And if you believe in the resurrection of Christ... And you believe in your own resurrection simply by virtue of your union with Christ. Then you believe that that victory, the victory seat, was both accomplished and one that you share in. And it seems that God is eager to share with his people. That he wants to share this victory with his people. Nowhere is this more clear than when we begin to look at his relentless pursuit. Verse 6 says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. I'm not a language scholar. I've studied in school for a little while. I dabble a little bit now. Um, But many have made the point that the word that we translate follow is a little too weak in this translation. I tend to agree. Because it's often a word that's used to describe what a predator is doing when it stalks his prey. That just like a predator hunts his prey down, that's the way goodness and mercy come after you. Now, now shall hunt me down is probably a little strong for this verse, but surely goodness and mercy shall chase me 
Surely goodness and mercy shall chase me. How long? All the days of my life. When God pursues his people, what does he use? He uses his goodness. He uses his mercy. He chases you with goodness and mercy. Telling us that no matter what we do or where we run, we can never outrun his goodness to us. Given to us in Jesus Christ. And no sin can outlast his mercy to us. Given to us in Jesus Christ. Scottish pastor Douglas McMillan. I love Scottish pastors, by the way. I could just listen to him talk forever, you know. Uh, but Douglas McMillan is a, a Scottish pastor. Uh, he's deceased now, but he tells a story that he heard from another Scottish, and much older Scottish Highland preacher uh, who was uh, also a, uh, a shepherd. Um, and this is what he said. He said, what do I think of when I, th-? this is what the older preacher shepherd said. He said, what do I think of when I think of goodness and mercy? He said, I think of the fellows taking the sheep home, walking down the road there with their sticks. The sheep are coming behind them, and behind the sheep are the two dogs. One is called goodness, and the other is called mercy. You watch them, sheep being what they are. When the shepherd's back is turned, they'll try and sneak off the road. That is what sheep do. You see a sheep on one side and off it goes, trying to get back to the pasture in the mountains. And without even the shepherd whistling, what happens? Goodness runs out and circles the sheep and turns it back into the flock and into the path of God. And then a little further along the road, another one will do the same. Or two or three will do it. And there you will see mercy running out and turning the sheep back to, ah, those are two lovely dogs. Goodness and mercy. If I ever had two sheepdogs, that's what I would name them, he said. One would be goodness, and the other would be mercy. Friends, Jesus is our shepherd king, and he is leading us home. And home is where we belong. And it, for you and for me, it's on the other side of some valleys. But he is taking us there with his rod and his staff. And what is chasing us? But Christ who set his sheepdogs loose. Goodness and mercy shall chase you all the way home. You know, earlier when we were talking about our commitments and how we have measured commitments, you know what I think is behind that? To a large extent, I think it's how our commitments are often in conflict with our desires for ourselves and for our life. And the sweetest thing about Psalm 23 is that what we're seeing here is that in Jesus there is no conflict. That his commitment to you is unyielding because his desire for you is unflinching. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh, Jesus, I pray that you would help us to believe that these things are true. They are truly wonderful. And so as we enjoy a life with you, I pray that you would help us to trust you and to appreciate the sheepdogs of goodness and mercy and the promises that you have made for us all the days of our life. 
I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.